the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I mentioned this on the very first Sunday of Advent, and that is that in the season of Advent, the church consciously enters into the ancient longing of the people of Israel, waiting for exile to end. But then we learn something throughout the season of Advent. Throughout Advent, we come to learn that exile is much deeper than the exile to foreign rulers or bondage to foreign rulers, be it the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Democrats, or the Republicans. Exile is rather the human condition. It's the condition which we are all subject to of slavery to sin. And this sin resides in the deepest part of our being. I'm amazed at how much we live our lives trying to push down this reality, but it's inescapable. Our hearts need to be made new. So this is the climax, or the, excuse me, the climate, the climate of exile that we find ourselves in. On this, the most holy of nights, in the darkness of Palestine, in the Mediterranean world of the first century. And in this climate, we get this unique and very peculiar claim of the New Testament. As we read from St. Luke's Gospel, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This claim is as unexpected and as strange as it sounds, and that is that this baby, born to a teenager in an animal shelter in the small village of Bethlehem in Galilee, that this baby is the King and Lord of the world, this baby is the one who ends exile, and that this baby is the one through whom the whole world will be brought to God. As the angel of the Lord pronounced, this baby is indeed Savior, Christ, and Lord. Jesus is Savior in that he is the one who ends exile by delivering us from sin. He is Christ, or Messiah, in that he is the long-expected one, the king descended from David to establish a new kingdom, wherein both Jew and Gentile have a share. And finally, Jesus is Lord, that is, he is the one who has come from the Father, and he is ruler over the whole world. But then tonight, we'll actually hear two gospel readings. The one we just read a few moments ago from Luke chapter 2, and then one more at the close of Mass, what's referred to as the last gospel, which was traditionally, as I said, um, read at the close of every single Mass. This is John's prologue, and in essence, when you think about it, both of these readings tell the same story. They tell the same story, yet they tell it from vastly different perspectives. As John writes, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the theological, invisible reality which undergirds what happens in Luke 2 on that night in Palestine. And this is the central claim of our faith, the claim upon which everything else rests. And that is that this baby is God incarnate, the Word from the beginning, 
now made flesh in our midst. As St. Paul puts it, For in Christ the fullness of deity dwells bodily, Emmanuel, God with us. This is why we are here. This is the celebration of Christmas, the feast of the incarnation of our Lord. And in the incarnation we see this movement of God, we could say. What some have referred to as the first of his two sacrifices. As St. Paul writes in Philippians 2, that Christ, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and sharing in human nature. As the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, comments, for St. Paul, the incarnation is in itself an act of sacrifice, than which none is greater. Christmas is as costly and self-giving as is Good Friday. Again, this is the movement of God to sacrifice for us. And sacrifice means that something is given up so as to obtain a greater good for having given that thing up. So our Lord sacrifices for us from his self-humiliation and taking on the form of man, all the way then to his humiliation and torture on Calvary's tree. And underneath this, we see Christ coming into and inhabiting the total experience of humanity, especially our sufferings. But then as we learn both from Christ's life and from the experience of humanity, that God's entering into our suffering unfortunately does not abolish our suffering. Christ suffered and we too suffer. I heard a priest say that God does not come into our suffering so as to abolish them, but rather to fill them with his presence. There are parts of our hearts that do not exist until such time as suffering comes in and God comes and inhabits those places. Ultimately, we see that God permits us to experience tribulations so that we might know him in those tribulations. And if you're currently in suffering, something like that might be hard to see, hard to accept. Though I do think we get glimpses of it, tastes of it, let's say, tastes of the new parts of our heart, as it were, the ways perhaps in which God is working in and through our trials and tribulations, the ways in which he is transforming us, even as we eat the bread of adversity and drink the water of affliction. But even so, there are certainly times wherein we don't see these things. That is, in our suffering, we don't always see the ways in which God is working. And I think the exhortation to that person is simply to keep going, not to give up. Even though it might feel as though you're alone, you're not alone. God is with us even when we don't feel it. Take courage. Even if you feel like you're in the middle of a boat on the raging sea in the darkness and you can't see land, keep rowing. God will indeed bring you to safety. And we must remember that this is the motivation for the incarnation. Again, that God would fill up the experience of humanity, all of its good and all of its bad, with his presence. In the final analysis, the motivation for the incarnation is love. God desires to be with us, and it is most fitting for God to save us in this way. 
instead of standing far off and waving his hand, God joins humanity to save us in love through his sacrifice of both the incarnation and his sacrifice on the wood of the cross. Through this, God unites himself to us and us to him, and thus will bring us to our heavenly home. A light truly has dawned in the midst of the dreadful darkness of exile, the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The incarnation is the end of our exile, and it is our only hope. I'll close now by quoting from a Christmas sermon from St. John Chrysostom, who is much better at preaching joyful sermons than I am. Come then, let us observe the feast. Come and we shall commemorate the solemn festival. Truly wondrous is the whole chronicle of the nativity. For this day the ancient slavery is ended, the devil confounded, the demons take to flight, the power of death is broken, paradise is unlocked, the curse is taken away, sin is removed from us, error driven out, truth has been brought back, the speech of kindliness diffused and spreads on every side, and a heavenly way of life has been implanted on earth. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.